Welcome to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. As a veteran senior pastor, Dr. Sullivan understands the importance of Bible teaching in the spiritual growth and development of God's people. Dr. Sullivan's method of teaching the Bible is to read and carefully explain each chapter and verse in clear and understandable terms so the student of the Bible gains the full understanding of God's Word. Now prepare yourself to learn and grow as Dr. Sullivan teaches through the Bible. Hello, and welcome to another session of Teaching Through the Bible. I'm Dr. Ken Sullivan. In this session, we're studying the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. So let's begin. I'm reading verses 1 through 3 in the New International Version. Now, brothers and sisters, about times and dates, we do not need to write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying, peace and safety, destruction will come on them suddenly as labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. In this context, the uh, terminology, the phrase, the day of the Lord, is speaking of the day when Christ returns with his saints, when he comes back with the spirits of those who have departed, and uh, the resurrection of the dead takes place, and the transformation of the righteous, uh, when we are caught up with him in the rapture, and then immediately the tribulation period begins. Now, no one knows the day of the or the hour that this will take place, so uh, don't accept any kind of teachings where people try to put a date on the rapture of the church when Christ is going to come back, because nobody knows. The Bible is very emphatic about this. Now, unbelievers will be totally surprised because they reject the message of Christ's return. Um, unbelievers believe that we are deluded because we're expecting Christ, we're looking for his return, we're anticipating his return, but it's nothing new. They they mock Christians who who believe that Jesus Christ is coming back because um, Christians have been saying that since he left nearly 2,000 years ago, actually 2,000 years ago. Yeah. Uh, and so they mock the people of God, And but this is nothing new. It, all the way back in the times of Peter, they were doing it. And Peter predicted that, especially in the last days, people would mock the notion that Jesus Christ is coming back. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4 says, In the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, What happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. So they mock, as, G, as uh, Peter predicted. Peter predicted that they would do that. He prophesied that it would happen uh, in these last days. And people are saying precisely what Peter prophesied that they would say. They are, they're saying, ah, oh, my grandmother said that, and my great-grandmother said that. My, my ancestors talked about Jesus coming, but nothing has changed since the beginning. Everything has continued on as it has. So they mock and they scoff. So unbelievers, since they do not believe, will not be expecting. And so they will be caught unaware. Jesus said this uh, in Matthew chapter 24, verses 37 through 39. He says, when the Son of Man returns, it will be like it was in Noah's day. In those days before the flood, the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time Noah entered his boat. People didn't realize 
what was going to happen until the flood came and swept them all away. And so uh, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage, as the King James says, uh, right up until the time that, uh, uh, that the flood took place, that the waters came and swept them away. Everything was continuing on in its natural routine. People didn't believe that it was going to rain. Uh, and they mocked Noah for building a, a boat on dry land. And, and so because they didn't believe, they were caught unaware. They were caught unprepared. They were caught by surprise. Unbelievers are not open to the possibility of Jesus's return. And so that's why they're going to be caught. They're going to be caught unprepared, and uh, just not expecting it. Unbelievers will be saying peace and safety. They will be expecting peace. They will expecting be expecting safety. They'll be expecting things to continue on as they, as they have been. And then uh, suddenly Christ will come, and they will be caught without being ready. Now I'm reading verses 4 through 6. But you, brothers and sisters, are not in darkness, so that this day should surprise you like a thief. You are all children of the light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or to the darkness. So then, let us not be like others who are asleep, but let us be aware and sober. And so, the point that uh, Paul is making here is that true Christians— True Christians, those who believe Christ, those who are followers of Christ, who are disciples of Christ, who are obedient to the gospel, will not be surprised because they believe and they expect. In fact, true Christians are looking for his return every day. Uh, true Christians know that he can come at any time. And so uh, they have read the Bible. They have been taught the word of God. And so they are fully expectant uh, of his return. We're looking for and we're hastening to the day of the Lord because uh, we want Christ to come back. We're looking for him to come back. We want him to come back and, and uh, take over the world, of course, uh, redeem the righteous, our bodies, transform us, um, give us bodies like his glorious body. And then uh, he's going to establish his kingdom, his rule upon this earth for a thousand years. We're looking for that. He's going to judge the wicked. He's going to pour out his wrath. Um, and, you know, we're not celebrating uh, that fact that this is going to happen, but, but we know that when he comes, things are going to change for the better. Noah and his family didn't know the exact day that the flood was going to take place, but they spent their lives preparing by following God's instructions. And so true Christians are uh, spending their lives preparing by following God's instructions. Paul tells Two, uh, true Christians, uh, he calls us ch children of the light and children of the day, verse 5. And uh, this expression, children of the light or children of the day, is a metaphor for uh, faith and obedience. Children of the light are those who believe and, and live by God's word. Children of darkness are those who reject the prophecies of Christ's return and his word and his teachings on how we should live our lives as we wait for his return. They mock Christians for believing in the creation. Uh, they mock Christians for believing in the return of Christ. Uh, the unbelievers believe in evolution. Uh, they believe that everything just 
happen. It just sprung into existence of its own. Uh, they can't explain how it started, um, but they have theories that they ch- teach as fact. They uh, mock the Bible and they mock the people of God. The people of Noah's day mocked him for building a ship on dry land, as I said earlier. Um, they just did not believe that this man had heard from God. Paul says that we should be awake or that we should be sober, meaning to stay alert, looking for, anticipating, and preparing for the Lord's return. Now, we prepare for the, uh, we prepare for the Lord's return by following biblical instructions. We read the Bible. We take it seriously. We are taught the Bible by the, the, the men of God, men and women of God, and, and, uh, and we listen to it and we, we take it seriously and we apply it to our lives. Now I'm reading verses seven through eight. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, putting on faith and love as a breastplate and the hope of salvation as a helmet. To sleep at night is to be ignorant of spiritual truths and to live in sin and unbelief, to live as if God's word is not true, to live as if God has not said it, God does not exist, his word is just a bunch of fairy tales, and so it has no impact on our lives if we don't believe God, if we're uh, children of the darkness. Darkness represents ignorance and unrighteousness. Day or light represents spiritual knowledge, awareness, and faith. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 18 says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn, shining ever brighter to the full light of day. But the way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. Um, God's people Keep increasing in knowledge. That's what that passage means. The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. Uh, we enter into Christ and we have just this little bit of light. And we follow that light. And we keep increasing in our knowledge of that light. And as we continue further and further in Christ, it gets brighter and brighter for us. We become more and more aware of the truth of God's word. Um, our faith grows and increases until it's like the full light of, of dawn, of, of, of day, of noon, the noonday sun. Uh, it is completely bright and our faith is locked in and we know that we know that we know. We are, we are convinced of the truth of God's word. The more we walk in it, the more we know, the more we understand. Faith and truth becomes clearer and clearer to us as we go deeper and deeper into the things of God. The more we know, the more we prepare for Christ's return by living by the instructions contained in his word. Now, deep darkness is ignorance. It's unbelief. Unbelievers keep falling into trouble, but they don't know what caused it. So they keep repeating the same errors. They keep making the same mistakes over and over again because they don't realize what caused them to stumble, what caused them to fall. They don't know uh, the root of the trouble in their lives is unbelief. Now, in verse 8, Paul says we should be sober. He simply means by that 
that we should know God's word and we should follow God's word. We should apply it to our lives. Uh, Jesus Christ is our savior, but he's also our Lord. Uh, that means that, that we have bound ourselves to him. We bound ourselves under him and he is the one who calls the shots. So we follow him. We obey him. We apply his teaching to our lives. Paul also says, put on faith and love as a breastplate, suggesting that we cover our hearts with faith and love, that we make it the central part of us, faith and love. The Bible says in Galatians 5 and 6, faith works by love. Um, in other words, if we have faith, then uh, love is going to be produced in our lives and in our hearts. To believe the Bible is to respond to it with deeds of love and kindness. If we really believe, we respond to what we believe. James chapter 2 and verse 20 says, faith without works is dead. If our faith does not move us to obey God and to do good, then there is really no faith at all. Our faith is dead. In verse 8 of our text today, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, Paul says, take the hope of salvation for a helmet, meaning protect your mind by fixating on our coming salvation, which includes our new immortal glorified bodies and our rulership with Christ. There are many good things ahead in the lives of believers. And so what Paul is saying is that protect your head like a helmet. Put on thoughts about your future. Reflect upon what is going to take place in your life. Think about the good things that are ahead of you. Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 through 21 says, But our homeland is in heaven, where our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, is. And we're looking forward to his return from there. And when he comes back, he will take these dying bodies of ours and change them into glorious bodies like his own. Now, that's the hope of salvation we should be constantly wearing on our head, in our head. We should be fixated on the fact that we're going to have new bodies. We're going to be immortal. Well, we're going to have eternal life. We're going to have a wonderful existence, a wonderful life with Christ. And that's something to look forward to. Now, I'm reading verses 9 through 11. For God did not appoint us to suffer wrath but to receive salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. He died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Therefore, encourage one another and build each other up just as in fact you are doing. Unbelievers are appointed uh, to God's wrath. Believers are not. We are saved from God's wrath. During the tribulation period that will begin immediately after Christ comes back for his church, God's wrath will be poured out upon unbelievers in many horrific ways. You do not want to be left in this world after the church is taken out. According, according to the book of Revelation, more than 5 billion people will die during the tribulation period uh, from earthquakes and war and disease and starvation and demonic creatures, asteroids, and poison water, and so many terrible ways that people will die. In fact, uh, the Revelation says that uh, some will be in such agony they will 
want to die and won't be able to die. Jesus said in Matthew 24, 21 through 22, but there will be greater anguish than at any time since the world began, and it will never be so great again. In fact, unless that time of calamity is shortened, not a single person will survive, but it will be shortened for the sake of God's chosen ones. After the rapture of the church, more people will become believers. These are the tribulation saints or the elect, the chosen ones that Jesus is referring to in Matthew chapter 4. These saints will suffer during the great tribulation period. Many will die for their faith uh, and many will suffer great atrocities when the Antichrist comes into the world. The fact that God has not appointed believers to wrath, believers, we who are are, are believing Christ before his return. Uh, in verse 9, he says this in our text. It suggests that believers will be removed from the earth before the tribulation period begins. That's just one of the proofs. Also in Luke chapter 26, 41, Jesus said, Watch therefore and pray always that you may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that will come to pass and stand before the Son of Man. So as, as he was talking to us about this in, in the, uh, Matthew 24, as he was teaching about this, and then in Luke chapter 26, um, he made it clear that we have the option of, of escaping this if we watch and if we pray. In verse 11 of our text today, Paul urged the Thessalonians to keep encouraging and building each other up in the faith. And certainly in view of the fact of, of what is coming, the, the great things that are ahead of us, and the trouble for the unbelievers uh, and those who missed the rapture, um, we want to encourage each other. We want to build each other up in the faith. Now, verses 12 and 13. Now, we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who work hard among you, who care for you in the Lord, and who admonish you. Hold them in the highest regard and love because of their work. Live in peace with each other. Paul taught the Thessalonians saints to, uh, first of all, acknowledge their leaders, recognize their importance, that is, to esteem them very highly for their work's sake, the King James says, I believe. Uh, so they are to uh, respect and value those who are ministering to them and watching over them. Uh, then the people of God in, Thessal in, in the Thessal Church of Thessalonica and, and to us as well, we are to love and highly regard our leaders. And then we are to live in peace, Paul said, with each other. Uh, certainly Paul is writing this to the Thessalonian church, but it extends to us in our generation. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, 9, Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. Now I'm reading verses 14 and 15. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, warn those who are idle and disruptive, encourage the disheartened, help the weak, be patient with everyone. Make sure that nobody pays back wrong for wrong, but always strive to do what is good for each other and for everyone else. We Christians are our brother's keeper. We're responsible for each other's good. And we should do what we can to promote each other. Uh, the Bible says that we should not just look on our own things, but we should also look on 
the things of others in Philippians chapter 1. When fellow church members are idle and disruptive, then we should warn them. We should encourage them when they're right. We should warn them when we know that they're wrong. When people are discouraged and disheartened, uh, we should encourage them. This is Paul's word to, to us, to the Thessalonians, of course, and to us. When fellow church members are weak, we should help them. They are our brothers and sisters in Christ. And so we should care about each other. We should practice patience with everyone. When people are struggling with sin, we should be patient with them. We should help them along and try to help them to get out. Verse 15 deals with the model of a Christian's attitude. What kind of attitude we should have as the people of God. Paul said that we should not be vengeful, vengeful, or we should not pay back wrong for wrong. We should not seek to take revenge. We should leave that to God. And then he said we should do good to everyone, even those who wrong us. Believers have to be intentional about this. This won't just happen to you. Because even though you're born again, even though you are a child of God, there is a natural inclination to retaliate when someone does you wrong. So we have to resist our natural inclinations um, for obedience to the things of God. We have to learn, we have to train our bodies to walk in righteousness, to do what is right, even when it doesn't feel good, even when it's taxing on our flesh. Jesus said, when we do this, we're imitating God, our Father, who gives sunshine and rain to the evil and the good. So we are not just to do good to those who do good to us. Uh, If we really want to imitate God, then we have to be kind to people who are not so kind to us. Now I'm reading verses 16 through 18. Rejoice always, pray continually, give thanks in all circumstances, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. The posture of a Christian, Paul is outlining here, the posture of a Christian is to maintain a rejoicing attitude, even in bad times. Again, that's something we have to practice. It will not come natural to give thanks, to praise God, to rejoice uh, when, when things are not going so good for us. The word rejoice means to feel joy or great delight. You have to reach down within to get that sometime because we can be uh, covered with layers and layers of discouragement. And we have to, despite the bad things that are happening in our lives and despite the discouragement, we have to learn to speak words of rejoicing. We have to learn to encourage ourselves in the Lord and speak his word and rejoice in him. We have to practice always rejoicing by shifting the focus from problems to blessings. You have to focus on the blessings rather than the pro- the problems. All of the good things that God has done. Uh, I have a list um, that I maintain. And, and when I really get down and, and I know that I need to be rejoicing in my time of devotion, I'll pull out my list of all of the blessings, not all of them, because uh, they're inexhaustible. But um, I pull out my list and I began to read the good things that God has done in my life, his blessings. Uh, So you have to gladden your heart. We have the power to gladden or sadden our hearts 
based on what we choose to focus our attention on. So we have to focus our attention upon the things of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 10 says, As sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. Paul was talking about his own state. He went through so much persecution, hardships, and difficulties in carrying the word of God. So there were many opportunities for Paul and, and those around him to be depressed and to give in to that and never rejoice. But they re, but he practiced rejoicing, even though he was sorrowful in his heart and in his situation, he rejoiced anyway. And I think a good example of that is when they were locked in the Philippian jail. Paul and Silas had been beaten brutally, and they had been bound up and put in jail. And while they were there, they uh, prayed and sang psalms. They sung and prayed, and the rest of the prisoners heard them. And God was so moved that he sent an earthquake and rattled that prison. And uh, Paul, of course, uh, had the opportunity to, to lead the, the uh, Philippian jailer and his family to Christ because he rejoiced even in sorrow. So we have to practice rejoicing in bad times. That's something that we discipline ourselves to do as people of God. Make a list of the blessings and, pra and, and practice rejoicing over them and include in your list, all that God has stored up for you, all that God has done, and the things that are that are to come. Your name is written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. You have eternal life. Uh, God is with you. God knows you. God loves you. God has given you people who love you, your strength, your health, your sanity. There are so many things that we can rejoice over and as we rejoice in the Lord in these things, then God blesses us and, and he begins to lift our spirit. Romans 8, 18 says, the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. And Colossians 3, 2 tells us to think about the things of heaven, not the things on the earth. So we have to practice this. And if we practice this, we'll be able to rejoice even when things are bad in our lives. Verse 7 says to pray continually, that is to be instant in prayer, to be ready to pray at an instant, and then to make it a habit to pray regularly, keep a prayer on your heart and on your lips. Uh, I believe that we should practice Bible reading, prayer, and meditation as often as we eat natural food. Um, three times a day is a, is a, is a good plan and a good rule to go by. If you can discipline yourself to set aside some time three times a day to, to go before God and to meditate upon his word, to read his word, chapter two, and uh, spend a little time in praying, then you're feeding yourself spiritually and you will stay strong that way. Daniel practiced this. He prayed three times a day in Daniel chapter six and verse 10. David practiced this. He prayed three times a day and and Psalm 55, 17, he mentions that. The early saints practiced that, uh, uh, praying three times a day and focusing upon God. Morning, midday, and evening, they uh, prayed. So this is a good practice. It's not a law because we're not being legalistic, but it is a good discipline to get into the habit of doing and it, and it will keep you close to God and close to prayer. Verse 18 says, give thanks in every circumstance. Expressing gratitude pleases God. Grumbling, murmuring, and complaining displeases him. 
there's always something to give thanks for. Again, if you need to write down your blessings on a slip of paper, on a sheet of paper, and recite them in your time of devotion or just time you've set aside to be with God, and uh, just rejoice over each one of these things. Lord, I rejoice in you that I woke up this morning and I have my sanity. I rejoice in you, Lord God, that I'm able to get out of bed. I rejoice in you, Lord God, that I have strength in my limbs. I rejoice in you for my family and my friends. And there are so many things that we can rejoice and give thanks to God for. It's not about feelings. It's about obedience. Because you won't feel like this many of times, but you've been commanded to do this. So it's not about how you feel. It's about obeying God. And when you obey God, your feelings will come around. We don't have to feel joy to rejoice. Remember, Paul said, as sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. We don't have to feel grateful to give thanks. If we obey with the right attitude, our feelings will eventually come around. God's will for us is to rejoice always, to pray continually, to give thanks in every circumstance, regardless to how we feel. God wants us to be people of prayer and gratitude. Now I'm reading verses 19 through 22. Do not quench the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, what is quenching the spirit? Well, quenching the spirit is to ignore the Holy Spirit's promptings or leadings. You know that the Holy Spirit is leading you to do certain things. It may be his feeling that he brings over you that this is not right, don't do this, or this is right, do this. Or he may just bring a teaching to your mind from scripture, something that the Bible says that you should do or that you should not do. When we ignore that, then we are quenching the spirit. Um, we are quenching his promptings and his leadings. To do wrong when the spirit urges us to do right is quenching the spirit. To reject the spirit's urgings is quenching the spirit. The Holy Spirit never leads us to do wrong. He only leads us to do what is right and what is in harmony with God's word. Uh, verse 20 of our text today, First uh, Thessalonians chapter 25, it says, do not treat prophecies with contempt, but test them all. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. Now, treating prophecies with contempt is to reject them without testing them. Prophecies should be tested by the word of God. If it contradicts the Bible, reject it. John 16, 14. Predictive prophecies should be tested for accuracy. If it does not come to pass, reject it. Deuteronomy 18, 22. Treating prophecies with contempt is also declaring that prophecies have ceased and that God no longer uses people to prophesy. That's treating prophecies with contempt. People who believe this reject prophecies outright. Um, so that's treating prophecies with contempt, and the Bible commands that we should not do that. 
Prophecies should be presented in an orderly fashion according to the rules that are laid down in 1 uh, Corinthians chapter 14. Paul takes goes to, uh, to great pains to explain just how tongues and prophecies and the gifts and the utterance gifts of the spirit, the gifts of utterance should operate in the church. He explains it in detail in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And so prophecies should be presented in that orderly fashion. Now I'm looking at verses uh, 21 and 22. And it it says, after testing every prophecy, uh, we should hold on to the good ones and reject the bad ones along with every other kind of evil. So if a prophecy does not come to pass, it should be rejected. If a prophecy conflicts with the word of God, we should reject it along with every other kind of evil. Now, uh, as a pastor, um, I kind of discourage people from jumping up and making prophecies when I was uh, pastoring, and and um, I didn't want to conflict with the scriptures and despise prophesying, so I put a rule in place that might help pastors uh, if you have people who are always going around prophesying and their and their prophesying is causing trouble in your church. Um, I just told um, our saints that you're free to prophesy. But know that you have to do it publicly here. We'll put a microphone out here and you can come and prophesy. But also understand that I'm going to judge it. We are going to judge it. And uh, if your prophecy is not of God, it's going to be rejected outright. And uh, you can imagine that that put an end to a lot of parking lot prophets and a lot of uh, false prophecies that were causing people trouble. So according to God's word in 1 Corinthians chapter 14, that's a good rule that we can go by and we can uh, order our lives and have an orderly church. Now, uh, Paul is saying here in verses 23 through 24, I'm reading verses 23 and 24, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you is faithful and he will do it. Paul's prayer for the Thessalonian saints was this. May God complete the process of sanctifying you through and through. The word sanctify has two meanings. One is to set apart like a husband and a wife. And I've explained that earlier um, in earlier chapters of this book. We are set apart just for each other's use, husband and wife. The other is to make clean. Okay. So the definition that Paul is using here is the one that has to do with cleansing you, making you perfect. The second definition is used here in verse 23, to cleanse you. May God cleanse you, sanctify you through and through. We are sanctified. We are set apart to Christ as his people, solely for his use. Um, The day that we become believers, we become sanctified and set apart to Christ. And then he begins the process of cleansing us from sin, that is, sanctifying us. Paul also prayed, may God keep you blameless in spirit, soul and body, to the coming of Jesus. The the word blameless means innocent of wrongdoing, guiltless. Paul promises that God will do it, that God will work in us, both the willing to do of his own good pleasure, 
that God will complete the work that he has begun in us. He is working in us to make us like him, blameless and innocent of wrongdoing. He will complete the job when he comes back. Now, verses 25 through 28. Brothers and sisters, pray for us. Greet all God's people with a holy kiss. I charge you before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, Paul gives his final instructions in this letter. He says, greet each other with a holy kiss. That is, embrace each other as as family. We are to express love to each other um, as family members, as brothers and as sisters in Christ with all purity, the Bible says. Then he says, have this letter read to the brothers and sisters um, and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. So Paul may not have known it at the time, but he was writing New Testament scripture. He was intentional in using his letters to instruct the churches, to teach them in his absence. And these letters were preserved and circulated and uh, later adopted into the canon of scripture by the early church fathers. And we are making use of them today. They are blessing our lives as they have blessed the lives of generations of people. Well, that brings us to the close of the book of First Thessalonians. In our next teaching session, we'll begin to study the book of Second Thessalonians. God bless you. Until next time. Thank you for tuning in to Teaching Through the Bible with Dr. Ken Sullivan. We hope this program has benefited you in your Christian walk. For a free download of this program and to browse Dr. Sullivan's books, videos, and audio titles, visit our website at EmergeCurriculum.com. Please tune into our next teaching session on Vision Stream Network or listen on demand from our podcast. Trust you've enjoyed this teaching. I want you to know that my book, Teach Me About Heaven, it's available on Amazon.com or you can get it at www.emergecurriculum.com. 